0: I'm Brena Garin, and you're listening to Hex Positive. Welcome, witches! This is episode 21 of Hex Positive. I'm your host, Brena Garan, and today we're returning to the subject of witchcraft and the law, as promised. Only this time, we're focusing on the subject as it applies to the 20th and 21st centuries. So, all the modern stuff. I'm going to start off by covering a few more important events that weren't mentioned in the previous episode, I'm going to be running down a short list of what the law says about witchcraft in certain modern courts, and I'm also going to talk about how certain laws intersect with modern witchcraft practices in ways that practitioners should really be aware of, since they affect some of our practices, even if they don't have any jurisdiction over our spirituality. I'm also going to be discussing some instances of modern witch hunts a little later, some of which are kind of gruesome, so I'm just warning you right now. I won't be going into a ton of detail, but I'm going to be linking some articles in the show notes that are not easy to read. I know, I know, I promised this episode would be less depressing in tone, and for the most part it is, but that bit's going to be rough. If you need to skip it, I completely understand. I'll try and close out with something a little lighter. Before we get started, I have some very fun events coming up. I just restocked the WordPress shop with Banishing Powder, Home Blessing Powder, and luck Salt this past week, with more on the way. I have a table reserved at the Samhain Market at Diversity Richmond on Sunday, October 17th, which I am super excited for. I always love their events, it's such a good group of people. I'm also going to be featured in the Witch With Me book club in November, and I'm really looking forward to that. They decided to pick up Growth Daughter Witchery as one of their featured titles this year. How cool is that? There is still time to get on the fun there. If you want to be part of the discussion, go to witchwithme.com to sign up today and make sure you take part in the 2021 Witch Census while you're there. So, in episode 20, we covered Wicca becoming a federally recognized religion under IRS standards in the 1970s, and being protected by the First Amendment per Detmer v. Landon in the 1980s. And we covered the instatement and repeal of the Fraudulent Mediums Act in 1951 and 2008, respectively. But there are a few more significant events that happened in the U.S. in the 20th century, that are worth mentioning. So I'll just go over those very quickly before we get further into modern law. 1900 to 1940. There was about a 40 year spate of periodic witch panics that swept through various places in Pennsylvania, my home state, uh, primarily focused around German immigrants, Pennsylvania Dutch communities, and practitioners of a certain type of folk magic called powwow. Please note that this is distinct from the use of the same word to mean gathering, but it was appropriated from the Algonquin word of the same meaning, and modern practitioners sometimes call their practice braucha or braucherie to avoid confusion. Between 1900 and 1940, there were at least a score of incidents across several counties, including Lehigh, Berks, Lycoming, Lancaster, and York, of people accusing their neighbors of witchcraft or of people straight up assaulting or killing members of their community on suspicion of having cast a curse against them or their family. One very famous incident you may know of is the 1928 murder of Nelson Raymeyer that inspired the Hex Hollow documentary. Raymeyer was a practitioner of powwow magic, and he was accused by another Hex doctor of having cursed a young man by the name of John Blymeyer. Lots of Myers. In November of 1928, Blymeyer and two friends went to Raymeyer's house with the intent of burning the man's copy of The Long Lost Friend the traditional book of rituals and remedies used in brauchery, and getting Raymeyer to confess what he'd done and lift the curse. Unfortunately, things broke down when Raymeyer wouldn't confess to something he hadn't done or give up the book, and Blymeyer wound up killing the poor old man and then attempting to burn the house down to cover up the crime. He and his accomplices were later apprehended and went to prison for the murder. If you want to know more about this, I highly recommend the lore episode entitled Desperate Measures, which talks about the Raymeyer case, and the book America Bewitched by Owen Davies, which discusses witchcraft beliefs and related occurrences in America after the events in Salem. There are a lot of small legal changes and shifts in public thinking that occur because of these smaller panics, and by the 1950s, things finally calm down again. But as we all know, these things move in cycles. 1970 to 2000, the satanic panic. Oh yeah. This was a moral panic that swept through the US, parts of Canada, and to a certain extent, the UK. I'm sure most of us have heard of this one, and certainly a goodly number of us live through at least part of it. But if you don't know, here's the skinny. Starting in the early 1970s, well, really the late 60s, but it sort of really took off in the 70s, people became absolutely obsessed with this idea that there were secret satanic cults all over America trying to bring down the church, the government, and common decency, and also trying to abduct and or control children through pop culture media. Seriously, this was everywhere. Like, people in politics were talking about it. It was all over the news and talk shows. Tipper Gore was really clutching her pearls there for a while. A lot of it kind of smacks of leftover McCarthyism. People used to be scared of communists. Now they were scared of satanic cultists. This is where we see the creation of the so-called moral majority, which entered American politics by helping Ronald Reagan get elected in the 80s. Christianity-based conservatism has basically had American politics by the balls ever since. That's right, I said it. And the devil was in everything, literally everything, Anything vaguely occult-related could be seen as some kind of satanic marketing tool or device for evil, depending on who you talk to. If you remember that one lady freaking out over the Monster Energy Drink logo, it was like that, but with everything. Everything from music, to movies, to toys, to literal Saturday morning cartoons. Oh, and you bet your ass they went after d d There were literal murders being blamed on tabletop RPG. Oh, and for the first time, mothers were entering the full-time workplace en masse. So we saw the rise of daycare facilities and anxieties about women leaving their children and the change of gender roles in the nuclear family and so on. And there were several incidents of people running daycares being accused of some truly awful Things. They called it Satanic Ritual Abuse. There was a very famous book called Michelle Remembers that was supposedly a non-fiction memoir about a woman recovering repressed childhood memories of abuse at the hands of a cult. Spoiler alert, it was a complete work of fiction concocted by Michelle and her therapist. Big, big scam. I'm not going to go into detail on... What the accusations in these cases were, because it's like the biggest trigger warning ever. But I do have plans to talk about the Satanic Panic in depth someday when I'm feeling very brave and very angry and possibly a little drunk. Trey covered it in episode 10 of BS Free Witchcraft, and Chelsea Weber-Smith does a great job of discussing it in episodes four and five of season one of American Hysteria. Both great shows. If you're not following them, you should be. The only thing I'm going to say is that there was never any physical evidence found for the ritual abuse claims and it was a big mess of paranoia and propaganda and leading questions and really terrible psychologists and saying we believe the children but only when they say what we want them to say. The moral panic died down toward the end of the 1990s, when witchcraft was starting to be portrayed more positively in pop culture with movies like The Craft and Practical Magic, and shows like Charmed and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And the second wave of the New Age movement meant lots of young people were gravitating toward Wicca and other pagan traditions. Some people were still freaking out about witches, and anyone who saw the absolute batshit nonsense that circulated on Twitter during the Trump administration can tell you that there are still people in America today who are just terrified of witches, while also having absolutely no idea what witches actually do. As Trey Dorn has pointed out, the only thing that really halted the satanic panic, at least for a while, was that 9-11 happened, and suddenly all those paranoid conservatives had someone else to be the focus of their irrational, xenophobic fears. Oh yeah, there's a rant there. Get me going for 10 minutes or so and I'll really be able to piss some people off. But we'll table it for now. So there's one trial to mention specifically that happened during the Satanic Panic, apart from the preschool and daycare workers. That's a whole big thing that I'm not going into. It really was basically a witch hunt, and so was this one. I want to take just a quick second to talk about the West Memphis Three. And big fat content warning for child murder here. 1993. West Memphis, Arkansas, three eight-year-old boys, Steve Branch, Christopher Byers, and James Moore, are found dead in an apparent homicide. I won't go into detail, but the bodies were in very bad shape, and the police officers examining the scene decided that the murder had been part of some kind of ritual because of positioning of the bodies and post-mortem treatment and so on. It was a pretty big leap to make, and so much of this case is just based on opinion and hunches rather than evidence. It's absolutely infuriating, but I digress. Police rather quickly settle on a trio of suspects, Jesse Miss Kelly Jr., who was 17 at the time, Jason Baldwin, who was 16, and Damian Eccles, who was 18, Baldwin and Eccles already had records for petty crime, and Miss Kelly had a reputation for having a violent temper and getting into fights. Two things are worth noting before I go any further. One, this happened smack in the middle of the Bible Belt in the latter days of the Satanic Panic. So the prevailing climate was not going to be very forgiving of anybody suspected in this type of crime and it lends itself to what happened later. Two, Damien Eccles had undergone inpatient treatment for mental illness, and according to Dr. George W. Woods, who later testified for his defense, suffered from, quote, serious mental illness characterized by grandiose and persecutory delusions, auditory and visual hallucinations, disordered thought processes, substantial lack of insight, and chronic incapacitating mood swings. He also had, as so many young people do, an interest in the occult. One of the officers involved with the case was heard to remark, "So Eccles finally killed somebody early on in the investigation." Raise your hand if you see where this is going. The investigation of this case was an absolute shit show. Police conduct was called into question regarding the interview and interrogation procedures. Shocking, I know. At least one of the boys was not properly advised of his rights. Miss Kelly was questioned without parental supervision. Illegal, since he was a minor at the time. And hearsay concerning Eccles' alleged attendance at a Wiccan meeting where he talked about the murders was entered into the record as fact Confessions were recanted. People lied on the stand, and a whole lot of pseudoscience and hunches were cited as evidence and Star Witness Vicki Hutchison later admitted she'd implicated the boys in order to get the heat off of herself for a different crime and tried to claim the reward money being offered for information it's It's just awful. All of this led to Miss Kelly and Baldwin being sentenced to life in prison and Eccles being put on death row. Think about that for a second. These are teenage boys, one of them with serious mental illness problems. There is literally no physical evidence linking them to the crime, only hearsay and hunches, and they're all sent off to prison for the rest of their natural lives. Unbelievable. Thankfully, this story has a somewhat happy ending. After a lengthy series of appeals and requests for retrials and a bunch of evidence coming to light involving false statements and jury misconduct, as well as new DNA evidence entering the record and a whole lot of stonewalling from the Arkansas Supreme Court, all three boys, now grown men, were released from prison as part of a plea deal in 2011. They had to enter Alford pleas, which basically means stating that they maintained their innocence while acknowledging that the prosecution has enough evidence for a conviction. It's a weird legal mechanism, but it worked. The judge sentenced them to time served and Eccles, Baldwin and Miss Kelly are now free men. The families of the murdered boys are still lobbying to reopen the investigation, unsurprisingly, though most of them now believe the West Memphis Three were not the ones who committed the crime. Morbid did a great three-episode series on this case back in March of 2020, so if you want a deeper dive, you should definitely check that out. Of course, this trial and others purporting to be related to satanic ritual abuse had more to do with paranoia and moral panics than with anything resembling actual witchcraft. So what does modern law say about witchcraft these days? I checked on the legal codes for a handful of countries to find out. Now, the reason I chose this particular smattering is because either the countries were the site of particularly notable numbers of witch trials in the past, or they're still having issues with them currently. I know I didn't talk much about Spain or Italy during the timeline portion of the previous episode, I promise you it was purely because of time constraints, but they definitely had their share of witch panics. And... I don't think I have to tell anyone this, but just in case, keep in mind that just because something is technically legal, it doesn't necessarily mean you won't have problems with the locals. In the United States, witchcraft and paganism are legal and protected by the First Amendment, specifically freedom of religion and freedom of speech. As anyone who lives here will tell you, that doesn't necessarily protect you from your neighbors, but it does protect your right to practice your chosen spirituality or craft as long as you're not breaking any other laws. And plenty of places like Salem, Massachusetts, lean into their witchcraft-related history in order to bring in tourists, a practice which also appears in the UK, Italy, Spain, and Germany, among others. In the UK, witchcraft was officially decriminalized in 1951, and now you just have to make sure you're covering your butt for consumer protection reasons if you're using witchcraft as a means of income. As far as I can tell, this applies across Britain, Scotland, and Wales, and Ireland's laws are much the same. In Canada... They are also covered by the 1735 Witchcraft Act, and Section 365 was added in 1892. However, as recently as 2018, people have been prosecuted for pretending to practice witchcraft or occultism as part of a scam. So it is legal to be a witch or a pagan in Canada, but again, you have to watch out for those consumer protection laws. Although if you're not trying to actively scam your customers and steal their money, you should have nothing to worry about. In Australia, witchcraft is legal in all territories, though it took until 2005 for the 1899 Vagrancy Act to be fully repealed, portions of which outlaw witchcraft and fortune-telling. In Spain, the Spanish Inquisition issued an edict in 1526 that accepted the existence of witches, but recommended repentance rather than execution and banned confiscation of their property. They were really much more interested in heresy and in persecuting Jewish and Muslim people. Great. And as far as I can tell, those laws still apply to the present day. So witchcraft may be frowned upon as far as I can tell, but it's not technically illegal in Spain. Spain, however, has a host of other problems, as I'm sure anyone living there can tell you. Italy. Couldn't find anything regarding their legal codes specifically, strangely enough, but... But Italian folk magic is alive and thriving, and there are plenty of articles about it, including a number of references to the Ben Andanti and other witches working for the public good. So I'm assuming it's either legal or at least permissible according to public opinion there. I could be wrong, and I am open to correction. In France, the last legal witch trial resulting in an execution was the Lyon trial in 1745. Since then, there have been a few prosecutions, but no executions. Louis XIV's 1682 edict following the affair of the poisons, remember that bit, didn't quite decriminalize witchcraft, but it made it much more difficult to convict someone of witchcraft as a crime. There was no formal countrywide witchcraft act introduced in France, and such crimes have generally been left to regional courts. So witchcraft is legal in France. Germany. This is another place where I just could not find specifics online, but a 2019 article from Sleek magazine entitled Modern Witches Are Stepping Out of the Shadow of Germany's Folklore Seems to indicate that witches there are comfortable being identified and practicing publicly. This is especially good to hear considering that Germany was basically witch panic central back in the day. In Sweden, the death penalty for witchcraft was abolished in 1779. Today, children dress as witches in traditional folk garb as part of Swedish Easter celebrations, and a monument has been erected at the site of the Torsakar witch trials. Sweden also offers tours of historical sites related to witchcraft. So you are good to go in Sweden. China. Unsurprisingly, it's difficult to find out very much about the specifics of modern Chinese law. But I was able to find an article from the South China Morning Post, which stated that while it is illegal to accuse someone of being a witch, accusations and social ostracization based on alleged practice of malefic magics still occur in rural areas. And given the general atmosphere of the country, I sincerely doubt that it would be legal to be pagan in public there. We'll be back with more Hex Positive after this brief sponsored break. This episode is brought to you in part by Global Grey eBooks, Research is an important part of any witch's journey, but sometimes it's hard to find readily available information or classical sources. And who has the time to wade through stacks of dusty tomes these days? Fortunately for all of us, there's Global Grey eBooks, a free online archive of public domain literature. Curated by a single tireless archivist, this site offers so much more than your average eBook repository. The archive is curated into categories, fully searchable by topic, title, author, and keyword, and there are things here you've only ever heard about before. You can wade through the archive at your leisure, or, for a small donation, you can download entire collections in one go. The books come in PDF, EPUB, and Kindle formats, and make excellent additions to a well-rounded digital grimoire. I highly recommend checking out the Occult Collection, as well as Mysteries and Secret Societies, for lots of interesting and unusual works. You can check out the full archive at globalgrayebooks.com. Remember, this site is all the work of one person, and it runs on donations, so make sure you drop a few dollars in the tip jar or purchase a collection to help keep the content coming. I know my witches are going to want to check out titles like The Black Pullet and Culpepper's Complete Herbal and English Physician, but you can also find copies of foundational texts that help shape witchcraft as we know it today, such as The Gardnerian Book of Shadows, Leland's Aradia, Levi's History of Magic, and so many more. I've used this site dozens of times to find classical sources for my own research, both for personal projects and for this show, and I can't endorse it enough. Whether you're interested in the history of witchcraft, or just looking to expand your library, visit Global Gray eBooks at www.globalgreyebooks.com. that's gray with an E, for the best collection of free public domain eBooks a witch could want. This episode is brought to you by Portland Buttonworks. Do you like buttons? Of course you do. Have you ever had a great idea for one but just been like, "Darn it, if only I had the resources and equipment." Well, fret no more. Portland Buttonworks is just what you need. Portland Buttonworks creates custom pinback buttons in 4 different sizes, plus magnets, hand mirrors, and bottle openers. Download their templates and create your own designs, or use their Design-O-Matic for quick formatting. You can order just a few custom items for yourself or as gifts, or order in bulk for merch, table sales, or your own shop. And they are quick! The turnaround time for properly formatted submissions is 1-3 to three business days for most orders under 1,000 pieces. That is lightning fast! I've been getting buttons from Portland Button Works for years, and their quality is always top of the line. Ever wonder where the hex-positive buttons came from? Well, now you know. And once you're done making your buttons, make sure you visit the PBW Witch Shop for a thoughtfully curated selection of witchcraft, magic, and occult-related zines. They've got books, buttons, tarot cards, and more. The collection has a refreshing emphasis on magic that relates to traditional and folkloric witchcraft, chaos magic, secular witchcraft, magical plants and herbs, queer witchcraft, politics, and social justice witchcraft, and other non-Wiccan magic. There's a good chance they have exactly what you're looking for. Visit the main Buttonworks at portlandbuttonworks.com and check out the Witch Shop and Zine Distro at pbwwitchshop.com. Help support small business and get your buttons from Portland Buttonworks. Fighting fascism one button at a time since 2012. Since we're all heartily fed up with Amazon right about now, I've decided to open a small online witch shop on my WordPress. You can pick up copies of Grove Daughter Witchery, The Sister's Grimoire, and Pestlework, or shop for witchy goodies like Banishing Powder, Witch Web Kits, and Witchy Buttons. You might even get a special surprise or two with your order. Go to brenagaren.wordpress.com/shop to place your order today. back to the show. The other country I want to talk about very quickly is South Africa, because they are currently in the process of revising a bunch of laws post-apartheid, and the 1957 statute regarding witchcraft is one of them, as I mentioned in the previous episode. The Witchcraft Suppression Act of 1957 criminalizes a number of things, including accusing someone of being a witch or of having supernatural powers or of having caused harm through magical means. It also outlaws claiming to have knowledge of witchcraft or the use of charms, as well as soliciting the services of witch doctors or witch finders or anyone claiming to be a witch or wizard of any stripe. The law is mostly aimed at suppressing witch hunts by making it illegal to claim you can detect witches or the use of witchcraft by supernatural means. This law and others like it were called into question in 2007 after a proposed bill entitled the Mpumalanga Witchcraft Suppression Bill was leaked from the Premier's office in that province. While the 1957 law was focused on suppressing witch hunts, this bill proposed to explicitly acknowledge the existence of witchcraft, identify traditional healing arts and related magical practices as such, and make it a crime for those things to be practiced. This seemed to be aimed at suppressing traditional magical practices and, as one can imagine, was likely to make things difficult for practitioners of non-traditional modern paganism as well. The South African Pagan Alliance and the Traditional Healers Organization banded together to lobby for review and reform of the Mpumalanga Bill and the existing 1957 law. As of 2008, the Mpumalanga Bill was suspended— and both laws were under review by the South African Law Reform Commission. Part of the SALRC's 38th Annual Report from 2010-2011 states, "...one of the SALRC's other new projects, the Review of Witchcraft Legislation, will support the constitutional guarantee to freedom of religion, but will also serve to protect vulnerable groups." It is mostly women advanced in age that are persecuted as witches by communities holding traditional beliefs. These innocent victims are vulnerable to a double degree, as women and as older persons. I don't know if anything has happened there since then, so let's hope for the best. But South Africa isn't the only place in Africa that's been dealing with modern-day witch hunts. There are a number of countries in sub-Saharan Africa that are having issues with this. Not always strictly on the level of state legality, if you follow me, but more on the level of local courts or a sort of village justice. Now, there are a lot of reasons for this and I fully acknowledge that I am whiter than kindergarten paste. and speaking from a place of privilege, plus I've never set foot in Africa, so I'm going to tread very carefully here. I've literally rewritten the next paragraph like three or four times, so please be patient with me. There are always a number of factors to consider when witch panics occur in a given region. There is never any one single cause. But... As I mentioned in the previous episode, when communities are frightened for one reason or another, they see the devil everywhere. And a lot of these panics are happening in places like Kenya, Tanzania, Ghana, the Gambia, countries where there are often large areas with limited infrastructure or a lot of isolated communities, where there has been ongoing hardship because of famine, or sickness, or war, or where life is just difficult in general, and where there either is or has been a high degree of political instability. Some of these countries are also recovering from really awful conflict, genocide even, that has happened within our lifetimes, So people there have a lot of reasons to be scared, to be paranoid and traditional beliefs that hold witches or practitioners of harmful magic responsible for their hardships have been rising to the fore. And because they may not have access to more organized courts or don't see a use for them, they just take care of things the way they've been doing for generations to us. It's awful and violent and unnecessary. But for the people who live in these communities, that's just the way things are. And it's not just places in Africa, either. We're also seeing witch hunts in parts of India, Papua New Guinea, and the Amazon region of South America. Like I said, the reasons are varied, but in most of these places, there is still a very strong and very pervasive belief in witches and the power of witchcraft to cause harm other factors that appear in many of the cases that i read about during my research include isolation a social system that enforces rigid traditional values and gender inequality and the presence of christian missionaries in these places witchcraft is routinely blamed for premature death disease famine hardship and even natural disasters and it's not uncommon to see accusations leveled as a means of confiscating someone's goods or property either. It's the same kind of thinking that we saw sweeping through Europe during the witch panics I talked about last time. Oh, and don't think for one second that the U.S. is free of this kind of thinking either. Most Americans may not have the same level of paranoia about witches that they used to, But we've treated indigenous people, people of color, non-Christians, immigrants, women, workers, and the LGBTQ community, pretty much anyone who can be labeled as other, with exactly the same tactics of demonization and persecution right up to the present day. And that is not okay. So don't think that I'm giving this country a free pass here, or trying to say that this is something that only happens somewhere else, I'm going to link a bunch of articles in the show notes to give you an idea of what I'm talking about. I'll warn you right now, they are not easy to read. There is a lot of violence and abuse that seems very senseless, and it's very disheartening. I had to take a minute and, like, go touch some grass after my last bout of research for this episode. And I deliberately saved those articles for last because I knew they would be the hardest to get through. I was actually going to go into more detail about the cases I found, but it was just too depressing. Bad enough that I had to, like, put it in my head for research purposes, I did not want to have to read it out loud, and I didn't want all of you to have to suffer through these stories just to find out about modern witchcraft law. But like I said, the articles will be linked in the show notes, so if you're interested in learning more about modern witch hunts, you can check those out for yourself. So now that we've talked about the really awful bits, let's finish up with something lighter. Apart from proceedings and laws directly related to witchcraft, I want to talk about some laws that are tangentially related. Things that aren't directly about witchcraft, but which affect our practices. Some of them should be common sense. Others might be a little more obscure, and you might not think of them unless you are already familiar with your local legislature. I do recommend that witches familiarize themselves with their local laws, since there are weird laws on the books in... Many, many states in the U.S. that really have no bearing on modern life, but might still bite you in the ass if you were, say, fishing from horseback on the Pennsylvania side of the Delaware River, or pulling a surprise pizza prank in Louisiana, or telling fortunes in Massachusetts without proof of state residence. Yes, all of these things are technically illegal, according to state law. Now, obviously, you're going to want to check your state and local laws to make sure there's not something obscure on the books for entertainment value, if nothing else. But you also want to be aware of more mundane things. Like I said, some of them should be common sense. Things like, don't go around throwing magical powders or potions in people's faces. That's assault, honey. And don't go putting it in their food or drink either, unless you're doing food magic with seasonings and spices that are already supposed to be there. I actually made a point of mentioning this in the introduction to pestle work, just in case someone thinks they want to get creative with the powder and oil recipes in that book. And speaking of oils, essential oils are for aromatherapy use only. They are not a substitute for medical treatment, should never be taken internally, and should only be used topically once properly diluted with a carrier oil. If I see one more witch recommending some kind of essential oil juice cleanse or whatever, I'm going to start a fight. Trespassing. Trespassing can get you arrested. So if what you want to do involves going onto someone's property without their permission or breaking into a house or vehicle, or going into a park or cemetery outside of public visiting hours, maybe take a step back and think about what you're doing. Is this spell or ritual so absolutely vital that you're going to risk actual fines and possible jail time? Do you really need to set up your ritual in that specific place, or would somewhere a little safer be just as good? I know this may not apply to people who feature cemeteries and spirit work very heavily in their practices. I'm just speaking in general terms. And on that note, since I know at least a few people have already thought of it, don't go digging up human remains for your curio shop, okay? Y'all think I'm joking. It happened. Look up Bonegate. sometimes. It was... Yeah, that was a thing. Generally speaking, it is illegal, To exhume human remains without the permission of the surviving family, or at least the owner of the burial plot. We've all seen crime shows, you have to jump through some hoops. And even then, I'm pretty sure no judge is going to be like, Sure, dig up old Mrs. Haversham because you need a skull for your ritual. Go right ahead. And even if it's a potter's field, or you just happen to find old human remains out on the land somewhere, that was still a human being you have no way of knowing who they were or who they belonged to. Legally speaking, if you happen upon human remains, you are obligated to inform the proper authorities, whether they look like they've been there for a hundred years or if they're a little more... recent. Let's avoid interfering with possible murder or missing persons investigations or desecrating old burial grounds whenever possible, hm? The last thing you want is a bunch of angry spirits knocking on your door some night like, Heard you got yourself some souvenirs! Animal remains can fall under a similar set of laws as well, depending on where you live. Game laws in certain states forbid people to own the bones, teeth, antlers, feathers, pelts, and so on, of certain species in order to protect endangered animals and prevent poaching and the trade associated with it. And yes, that means you might get in trouble for picking up that eagle feather you found in the park. Because you may have just happened upon it, but if the law says you're not supposed to have it, you can still get into trouble. Now, there are exceptions made in some of these laws that apply to antiquities or to indigenous ceremonial garb. It's really best to check and see what's on the books in your area because this varies widely depending on where you live. Speaking of things that vary depending on location, let's talk about parks for a second. State, local, and national parks are great places to go walking, to connect with the land, to unwind and relax, to go camping if that's what you're into. There's lots to do. Always observe the posted rules for these places, whether you're there in a mundane capacity or a witchy one. This is for your safety as well as the safety of the park and the species living in it. There's a saying, take only pictures, leave only footprints. It is usually illegal to take souvenirs from state or national parks that didn't come from the gift shop. That means don't go picking bits off wild plants or putting neat rocks in your pocket or leaving your trash and food waste around. In addition to damaging the local ecosystem, that can get you into trouble. And in some places, most famously on certain beaches in Hawaii, it can get your dumbass cursed, too. You do not want smoke with Madame Pele, trust me. There are plenty of places where you can go to forage for wild-crafted plants that are perfectly legal, so look up what's available in your area and go from there. Also, make sure you have that field guide handy so you're identifying things properly and not risking your safety with something poisonous or pulling up an endangered plant. Those really pretty succulents you see on some hillsides in California? Yeah, certain species are becoming endangered because people will stop their cars and just dig them up to take them home, not knowing that, one, those plants won't survive in a pot, and, two, they've just disrupted the root system of all the plants nearby, so now they're going to die, too. Yeah, don't be that person. Don't pick endangered plants. Know what you're picking. Be responsible. Only ever take as much as you can reasonably use and leave the rest to grow. If you want to be considerate, water the rest while you're there. Sustainable consumption, witches. If you want more information on permaculture and responsible, sustainable land use, I highly recommend picking up Dana O'Driscoll's book, Sacred Actions lots of great information. She was a guest on the podcast some month ago, and I highly recommend her work. Going real quick back to that take-only-pictures-leave-only-footprints bit. If you're going to dispose of a spell in some fashion, or if you're doing a ritual or something outdoors, don't leave your crap for someone else to deal with. Pick up your trash, don't pollute the waterways, And for crying out loud, practice some damn fire safety. Don't leave your fire unattended, even if it's just a candle. And thoroughly extinguish your embers before you leave. That goes double, maybe triple, if you're in an area prone to wildfires. And on the legal side of that, if you need a permit for a campfire or a bonfire, get one before you go lighting anything up. If that sounds like too much hassle, you need to find another way to do the spell. That's all there is to it. There's plenty more I know I'm forgetting, but these are the big ones that should apply pretty much everywhere. And because I know there are some wild cards in the audience who aren't going to listen to a damn thing I say, I'll say this. I can't advise breaking the law for witchcraft purposes, but if you happen to find yourself in a bad situation, Cover your ass, know the law, know your rights, and get legal counsel first thing. Remember, the cops are not on your side. Also, if you're going to be making a living with your craft, double check the local and state laws for where you live. You may need to specify that your wares or services are curios or novelties or for entertainment purposes only. This is how you get around laws that restrict the sale of occult items or services. And if you're going to be dispensing any kind of medical advice with herbs or natural healings, get your damn certification so you're properly trained and you don't hurt anyone. And I don't mean a quickie correspondence course you take online or something you do in a weekend at a local hotel something that takes actual scientific information and instruction and practice over months or possible years of study. If you want it bad enough, you'll do it. If you're going to practice something that's supposed to function as medicine, you need to have more knowledge and more training than just, I read a few books on herbalism and naturopathy, so I'm good to go. Like I've said before, if you want to use herbal medicine on yourself, that's fine. But the second you start using it on anyone else or recommending treatments to other people, especially on the internet, you become responsible for what happens to them as a result of your actions. Doctors get sued for malpractice all the time and they have all kinds of money and insurance and legal representation to help them out when that happens. If you as an amateur herbalist with no certification and none of those resources get slapped with that same kind of lawsuit, which is a very real possibility if something bad happens, you are screwed. Be smart. Get trained. Get certified. Don't be that witch. So, that does it for this surprise second episode on witchcraft and modern law. Whew! Next time I get the urge to do one of these thesis-length deep dives, someone whack me upside the head with a broom until I see reason. I'm definitely going to be doing more history of type episodes since y'all really seem to enjoy them, but the next few months will be much more reasonable. I know, I know, I always say that and that I do just the opposite. I know this about myself. Anyway... The October episode is already set. You'll be treated to another raucous ramble from me and Lazzy Stardust, this time talking about witch hunters and what a bunch of pretentious, greedy douchebags they were. I'm planning to keep spooky season going with a look at the history of Ouija boards in November, and then it's back to wholesale witchy things in December. So until next time, I'm your host, Brenda Garen, reminding you to stay safe, wear your mask, get vaccinated if you can. And in a return to the old adage, always practice safe hex. Hex Positive is a proud member of the Nerd and Tie Podcast Network. Check out everything they have to offer, including our sibling podcast, BS Free Witchcraft, over at nerdandtie.com. Intro and outro music by Kevin McLeod. For all the latest updates, follow at Hex_Podcast on Twitter. You can also follow me at, at @BrianaGarren on Twitter and Instagram. For more information on my books, you can check out my WordPress and my Amazon author page. And if you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash Stay safe, wash your hands, and remember, always practice safe hex.